Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas will shape our future. Today I meet with Thomas Hendricks Ilves, former president of Estonia and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Blockchain. So, in all of our discussions in Davos, where we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and good examples of governments dealing with effects or preparing for it, everyone mentions Estonia. Why is that? <laughs> well, I, uh, there are probably a number, a number of reasons, but uh, uh, it's that Estonia decided a long time ago that uh, the way to bootstrap its development uh, is to uh, use technology uh, in as intelligent a way as possible. And that we've been doing that actually for some 25 years. Uh, and it has clearly had an effect. I mean, one of the things that um, I just uh, finished putting together with at the World Bank along with the uh, chief economist Kaushik Basu last January was a massive study of how technology uh, can be used for developing countries because the World Bank deals mm -hmm. with uh, development obviously and so uh, in fact I get to say right now if, if people are interested in how technology can be used for development then you can go to the World Bank homepage worldbank.org and there you can download it I wouldn't suggest printing it out because it's about 400 pages or even more but you can read there uh, all the ways in which things work or don't work uh, I mean there are also many many solutions that um, don't necessarily work at all Uh, and so just blind adoption of technology without uh, sort of the proper preparation for it is not going to give you effects and you'll just be spending money. Uh, and in Estonia, I think, uh, well, maybe it's been a little lucky, but I mean, we've also done things and we realized, well, that's not the way to do it. Uh, so, But doing it consistently for these years has enabled us to, at least in terms of e-governance, uh, You know, we're still disappointed with uh, the, the uptake of technology by our companies sometimes, but at least in the European Union, we are the number one e-governance country. This is impressive. And why would you say it's only Estonia? Is, the, is it something to do with your politics? Was it something historical that, uh, that helped do that? Um, and Well, I, I guess historical was that after 50 years of communism, you realize that the neighbor up north, Finland, that before communism was at the same level of development as you and the same GDP per capita as you. And, this, and then you come out of communism and they're 13 times richer than you. And you go, then maybe we want to catch up again. Uh, but actually, one of the big lessons that I've uh, had and I've, it's become so clear to me is that um, you know, technologies like oxygen, it exists everywhere. Uh, the question is, how do you use it? And, and, in order, and the question of how to use it is not technological. It's an analog answer. It is a matter of policy by the government. It's a matter of regulation. And it's a matter of the legal basis of what you do. 
So we had, we adopted things that, uh, I mean, the technology is very old. Uh, Two-factor digital signature, authentication mm -hmm. signature with legal force. We adopted that in 2002. The, the ADAS directive of the European Union is now coming into effect. I mean, it was passed, but its provisions are coming in uh, this year. It specifies the same thing. So it took, I mean, we did in 2002. Uh, other countries have done it, but uh, again, uh, there was no reason why Europe could not have been at the forefront and because the technology itself, in fact, is even older. The technology is 25 years old. Mm -hmm. We adopted it when it was basically eight years old. And it's not, I mean, the technology, it's not, it's not a technology issue. It's that does, is a government willing to create the legal basis for it? Is the government willing to follow up on the regulations? Is it going, uh, going to adopt the policy of uh, putting, putting as many services as possible online or not? And we took that route. Uh, we took that route because we thought it would be, on the one hand, saving money for the government, and secondly, because we could provide better services for the citizen. And the key, key aspect of becoming a uh, an effective e-governance is that you have to actually uh, concentrate first on services for citizens that they would like to use an e-government approach. And that is, uh, I mean, that's, I think, another place where governments sometimes go wrong because they, they, don't, uh, they don't think about services for citizens. And of course, having the right technology helps because I, one reason why I think so many systems fail is that it, they're based on weak technology or mm -hmm. sort of shaky technology. So which technology is now for you in the forefront of this? I know you work a lot with a, with a blockchain technology as it's called, uh, artificial intelligence, all of these things. Tell me a bit about what you Well, think. I mean... I mean, I can't rank order what's more important than the other. But I will say that given, given the dangers and the fears that people have about, uh, about data, mm -hmm. that, uh, that blockchain, or I prefer to say distributed ledgers, it maybe gives a better idea of, of how it works, is really a, a crucial technology uh, for maintaining integrity of data. Now this, okay, that's to understand what I mean. Um, everybody in Europe is worried about privacy. You know, even before Snowden, but everyone's like, oh my God, people can read what I have. And I say to people, okay, if someone finds out my blood type, I may not like it. I might find it annoying, or maybe even be insulting. If the record of my blood type is changed, that could be fatal. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. And one thing is privacy or confidentiality. The other one is data integrity. Uh, and as more and more uh, data is on only is only available in digital form. In my country, for example, uh, there are vast databases or of services that are only digitally available. They don't exist on paper. So all health records are digital. 
all property ledgers. Who owns what? Land titles, uh, land registry, uh, court cases. I mean, we don't. We no longer publish these big books with court cases. They're they're, they're all machine readable and available. Now the the problem is, what happens if you only have it in digital form, and someone goes in there and changes it? This could, I mean, this would disrupt everything, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so the, for example, the example of the blood type is not far fetched in my case because my my medical records are all available digitally. So, so to guard against data being changed, you need a technology that that prevents or prevents changing data that it promotes data or maintains data integrity. Now, in this whole blockchain sort of explosion, I would say 99.999% is devoted to fintech or financial technology, mm -hmm. which is completely understandable because uh, you know the banking sector in general, uh, these things are, are all going completely digital, and the biggest fear is someone's going to wipe out money, uh, which, which exists no longer on paper or no longer as paper. It simply exists as ones and zeros. Uh, and so this is an understandable concern. Uh, my, uh, my perspective coming from basically 25 years of public service is that uh, let's not forget all of these other things. Uh, you know, the public sector is in some countries like mine is very very advanced technologically uh, but you know we're just as worried about national data being wiped out changed stolen uh, as bankers are about the, you know their their money um, and this being of course the economic forum uh, clearly the emphasis is on the on the financial side but in fact uh, if, if I have a message uh, to people, it's that if you have, if, you are, if your government is going digital, then you really need to worry about data integrity. You really ought to learn about, uh, about blockchain or distributed ledgers and, and use it in one way or another to make sure that you don't have things happen. I mean, it, it, things, can, you know, things can happen with data that are, I mean, they don't even have to be evil intent. I mean, Japan lost about 5%, I guess, of its national data uh, with uh, Fukushima. Uh, this was, uh, I mean, this is, it was a natural disaster. Uh, it wasn't, you know, sort of bad guys coming in. But nonetheless, I mean, you need to be able to reconstruct the data I mean, there are many things you can do for something like that, but uh, I would just say that the public sector, uh, which has traditionally been slow on new technology uptake, uh, has an obligation to deal with, uh, deal with uh, new technologies, or put it this way, as governments go more and more into using IT, that um, it's not the IT, you don't, don't just do IT, so that, okay, I can do this or that and store data, but you also worry about the, uh, the fact that that data is, maintains its integrity. 
So thinking about the, the rise in cyber threats uh, that governments take and combined with a trend that governments are trying to get digital, what do you see and having all of this experience in the public sphere, mm-hmm. in the global public sphere as well, uh, how do you see the next 10 years? Do you see it more possible that governments will manage to take measures with measures like the distributed ledger and others to prevent uh, a very significant cyber threat or that we will learn from our mistakes uh, and then we will try to do something significant? Well, I would hope for the first. The general experience is that you have to have a bad experience before you do something. I mean, okay, what is the worst hack that we know of Uh, I mean, because there may be many that are worse that you don't know of, and this one came out a year later anyway. But it's the uh, Office of Personal Management hack in the United States with, mm-hmm. with the records of 23 million federal employees. Well, which it turned out not even to have been encrypted. I mean, highly sensitive data. I mean, this is, you know. Uh, and everybody who's ever worked for the United States federal government his or her personal records are there. And okay, maybe in some cases or most cases, it's not, you know, it's more like address or something, but you know, you have psychological profiles of, yeah. of people and I mean, all kinds of sensitive data. So that was just sucked out, you know. And as, as I said, as, as I was told, it was not even encrypted. But um, where, where I would pinpoint the, uh, the crucial issue uh, where, uh, I see difficulties in, the, in doing this because it's, again, a policy and regulation, legal issues. But I think that governments, well, let me put it this way. Uh, the world of IT means there are no more borders. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in a world of borders, physical borders, in order to go from one place to another, your government will give you a passport. And that passport means the government of my country says I am who I am. And that is, that's what a passport is. Now, a passport's been around basically in the sort of the way we use it today since about 1920. Before that, they actually didn't have, you know, But, but the governments this, in, in 1920, because of all these refugees and uh, people and fears, You know, they there was they adopted a convention that said, okay, we every, governments issue passports and they have certain dimensions, and, um, and that is how you cross borders. Now we live in a borderless world. Uh, how do you know who is who? We don't. The model that we have adopted, uh, that is in wide use, the biggest use, is uh, about 35 years old. It is the name at domain and then the suffix with a password. That model was, uh, came into use in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, on something called BitNet, which was a, a pre-HTTP uh, uh, protocol before, I mean, before the sort of hypertext transfer protocol, you know, that gives you web pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, It was just email. And it was used uh, in BitNet by about 3,500 academics. 
Yeah, people in university. So, you know, Barcelona could, could talk to San Francisco and uh, New York could talk to Munich. And, and generally, you know, academics at universities tend to be nice people. Then, then, uh, and so this system worked well. Our problem is that instead of 3,500 people who are you know, with PhDs uh, and trustworthy and, and tied to a university, we now have 3.5 billion people on the Internet. So this model of your email address plus a password is not, is not, is not working. I mean, it is working clearly in that we all use it, but it's not secure. It's not secure. I would say that what we, where we have to go is two things. One is that we have to go over to two-factor authentication, uh, which I'm sure you can describe, but basically it's a, so you need two ways of identifying you to make sure you're you. <clears throat> but more importantly, for uh, your, to take the next step and actually do genuine uh, services, you also need someone, and that I believe can only be the government, will certify you as you, and then, once if you have that, you can use uh, your identity as a, a legal document, uh, which we have in Estonia since 2002. So I can sign contracts, I do, I mean, banking, everything, it's all, it's always, I mean, it's all places where you would have a legal signature. I mean, if you sign a bank draft, I sign a contract. We, because we gave it legal force, is equivalent. And then that's where you can start doing really interesting stuff with government. But the government has to say you are you sort of as, as sort of creating the, the, the identity that is backed up by your country. Just as, you know, I have, my, I have my passport. My country says, I'm me. Well, you, but for now you, you, you we're living in a borderless world, so everywhere you need to be able to say, I am me. Yeah. So last question before, before I let you go. We only have a couple of minutes left. But when you are here in Davos and you discuss these things with other political leaders, uh, and you make these suggestions, these recommendations, what is the reaction? It really varies. I mean, there are, there are countries that get it, and then there are countries that don't. So it's... Um, I often, I mean, I usually tell them, go, 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 go to Estonia, and you can, when you see it, actually, mm. when you see how it works, then you'll understand. Me talking about it, it's all words, and it's blah, 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 and I mean, people who... Say, People who understand technology will understand what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, one of the problems we have in the world is that most people in politics don't. Uh, just as I said, the, uh, that's why also the uptake is slow, because that we have, um, that if you want to have certain things work, you need to have laws passed. Uh, and if the people who make the laws don't understand the technology, then you have problems. Okay. Let's hope that your work with the Council on the future of blockchain and with your role, you can inform more of those important people on the potential advantages of these technologies. Thank you very much for your time. That was all from today's episode of A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and today I talked to Thomas Hendrik Ilves, former president of Estonia and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Blockchain. <laughs>